This season of The Ready State is sponsored by ButcherBox. Yeah, you know, we have been, we get asked a lot about nutrition. A couple things. One, your tissue quality is directly impacted by the quality of things you eat, unequivocally. And I think we can pretty much boil down all of the uh, information I know about nutrition into one sentence. Don't eat like an asshole. Here's the deal with ButcherBox. We've used it. We love it. You get a box of super beautiful grass-fed or finished beef, free-range chicken, and old-world pork, whatever that is. <laughs> it's like vintage pork. No, no. But here's the deal. I love bacon. You love bacon. Use our link. We'll get you $20 off and get some free bacon. And it's 9 to 11 pounds of meat for $129 a month, which is less than $6 a meal. I mean, forever we have been saying you should probably eat like a vegan plus the best meat you can afford. Vegan plus meat. And guess what? ButcherBox is that. It's, it's amazing. You like meat and want to avoid eating like an asshole and you love free bacon, go to butcherbox.com slash the ready state and you'll get $20 off and free bacon. No brainer. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! Today we are very excited to welcome Stanford neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman, who we first met through our very good friend Brian McKenzie. Uh, he is a, this is a brain. He is a serious brain. <laughs> I'm, I'm at loss for words because... When you listen to how fast and how quick this guy's brain is, you're thinking something is going on here. Now, remember, keep this in context, that this conversation with Dr. Andrew Huberman is relevant because he's an expert in neuroplasticity. In fact, which is, which is short for how does the brain rewire itself? How does the brain heal itself and, and repair itself through its innate ability to rewire itself? These days, he is working at Stanford studying, studying fear and anxiety through a really cool virtual reality chamber. Um, some of the guests go in there and get surrounded by great white sharks and have their brains studied to see how they deal with fear and anxiety. Remember, because this season we're talking about pain, one of the things that we want to make sure we understand is how does the brain interpret these things? How does it make long-term changes? How does it organize itself around chronic persistent pain? And Andrew is one of the fantastic is a fantastic resource for help for us to sort of unravel this complexity in the amazing software and hardware upstream. Enjoy. Mr. Huberman, dude, it is good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. We are really excited to have this chat today. Thank you so much for being here. I think the last time I saw you, uh, you were chewing Nicorette with Brian and we were we were killing ourselves in our side yard. So it's good to see you again. Yeah, and they just come back from, um, you know, diving in a pod of great white sharks. Yeah, so that's know, why they were chewing Nicorette. You know, it's interesting. I'm sitting here very sunburned today, and I was thinking about you a lot this weekend because I was in the Molokai Channel swimming and hanging out. And your, I don't know if your fear shark research, which we'll talk about in a second, um, as part of this conversation, I don't know if it helped me or hurt me. <laughs> yeah, did you see any dorsal fins? No, but, you know, I'm not going to say I didn't. You knew they were out there. They were out there. <laughs> They're always out there. <laughs> so, um, to be on, I'm really excited to be here. Thank yeah, you. thank you so much. So, I we talked about this before we started, but in this season of our podcast, we're really focused on pain. Um, but your area of expertise is neuroplasticity, and this is a super interesting emergent field where there are so many new and amazing things going on. Um, can you just give us a quick 
overarching definition of what neuroplasticity even is. Yeah, and why, why, why should we care, why should especially we care? in the context even about pain? Yeah, so I'll answer the second question first. So the reason that we should care, everyone should care about neuroplasticity is that you know every person that's alive was endowed with a brain um, that has the capacity to change itself. And to me, and I think to many people, that is the most remarkable feature of the brain as an organ is that it can self-direct its own change. And you know, you can go really deep down the rabbit hole of what that means, but put simply, it means that you can wire up other people the way you want them to behave, act, and feel. That's called parenting. And then once you're responsible for yourself uh, as an adult or a pseudo-adult, then you can direct your own neurology. You can change your neurology. You can literally engage in behaviors, thoughts, and feelings to shift the way that your subsequent behaviors, thoughts, and feelings are going to function. And that's incredible. I don't think we can say that about any computer, any robot, any artificial intelligence system yet, uh, or any other organ in the body. So that's incredible. And I think that has direct relevance for understanding how we think about experience and respond to pain. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll talk more about that. And then in terms of um, you know, I think a really uh, kind of clean definition on plasticity might sound something like it's any time that the connections between neurons, whether it be their strength, their distribution, or their function, changes. That's the simplest way I can put it. A lot of people think about changing the structure of the brain at some massive scale, but you can actually get a lot of changes in the way that you perceive things, feel things, and the ways that you can behave in the world from just changing the distribution of synapses or connections between neurons without actually changing the number of neurons. You know, there are opportunities for plasticity that come from stem cells and we could talk about that, but you don't even need those massive new cellular changes or new neural highways as people talk about. Those can occur and even in the adult brain, uh, but even just changing the strength of connections between neurons can have a massive effect on what you experience in terms of pain or pleasure or um, any number of uh, different experiences. So this is more of a comment than a question, but the first time I really became aware of neuroplasticity was when I re read John Rady's book, Spark, um, where he describes exercise as miracle grow for the brain, um, which may be an, an oversimplification of what is actually going on. Um, but that was sort of the first time I became aware of the fact that the brain could you know, grow and change, even in adulthood. Yeah, I think there's really a growing understanding that we have the potential to rewire ourselves. Uh, and perhaps that's really what sets us apart from the other animals on the planet, which is that we can elect to change ourselves in very specific ways by engaging in things like studying or training or meditation or breathing or cold exposure. Any number of different things um, can be done in order to change your neurology. There, um, the, the exciting thing to me is that we're moving past the kind of broad definition of what, you know, of plasticity as, okay, well, you can change your brain and you can change your behavior, uh, in a, in a very, you know, indelible way, if, if you like, um, it, or you can erase it, you know, you can erase something and, and put something new in its place. But the, but the exciting thing is that we're figuring out as, as a field, not just my lab, but as a field that there are states that one can go into that will kind of unleash plasticity. 
So, and we're really starting to understand the neurochemical basis of that and the contingencies for getting long-standing plasticity. Um, you know, some of those involve changes in neuromodulators. Some of them involve changes in actual circuitry. I'd be happy to talk more about those. Is this like, are you like talking about like transient hypofrontality, that kind of flow state as like, as a gateway in? Is that, is that an example what you're talking about? Okay. Um, so to just kind of open up the oh, Wait a second. Hang on. Wait, wait, wait. J-Star's laughing Can, at me. Yeah. So, I'm laughing at him because he said transient something, something that no one has any idea what that means besides perhaps <laughs> you and him. So if, if you do answer, if you could explain what he's talking well, about. Well, what I want to say this question. We, we interviewed Stephen Kotler, who was looking at how extreme athletes put themselves into these flow states, which made them very creative. Right by forcing themselves into scary situations, they would snap into these in these states, and then that creativity would would carry over. And I I think that was just the the mechanism of kind of what you were hinting at a little bit. Sorry if I I didn't mean to nerd out. No, but you you are it's the you are the full nerd. I mean I'm I'm here. <laughs> That's um, so the I think the first principle for people to understand um, a, a takeaway I hope is that um, there are mechanisms in the brain. There are circuits, literally connections between neurons that were designed for plasticity. So we, we often think about you've got these circuits in the brain, you can change them and that plasticity is kind of like this phantom thing, but there are actually circuits in the brain that were devoted to plasticity. So a good example of that is a structure in the basal forebrain called nucleus basalis for the aficionados out there. It's nucleus basalis of minert, if you like neuroanatomy. But nucleus basalis is a collection of nuclei in the base of the forebrain, basal forebrain, that extends axons essentially all over the neocortex. And those axons release acetylcholine in what we call neuromodulatory fashion. It kind of dumps it into the extracellular space. It's not like a direct co conversation between two people, which would be synaptic communication. It's more like um, sh shouting over a megaphone to a, a large crowd. Okay, so acetylcholine is released from nucleus basalis, but, but and, and it has the capacity when it's released to enhance the firing of neurons locally. Okay, so imagine there's the, all these fire hoses coming out of nucleus basalis all over the brain. And then wherever acetylcholine is released locally, whatever events are, whatever conversations are happening between neurons, whether or not it's a motor neuron conversation based on a movement or a pain experience and pain neurons based on some pain, whatever is happening at that location, those synapses become stronger and more reliable, meaning they tend to fire more often and they tend to fire more robustly. The, com the communication between those neurons gets better. And so you say, okay, well, what dictates whether or not one set of synapses or another set of synapses receives this, this uh, release of acetylcholine locally. And the answer is attention. Wherever you focus your attention, you increase the capacity for plasticity. That wasn't meant to rhyme, but it just happens to. <laughs> Wherever you, attention literally is the gate on plasticity. And, but when we talk about attention, you know, I don't like to use kind of vague terms without giving some underlying mechanism. When we talk about attention, we're talking about a spotlight of acetylcholine release locally to those synapses. There's, and I'll give an example of two experiments. Um, one was done by a guy named Mike Merzenich when he was at UCSF. He did many experiments, but I'll give you an example of one. Mike was a member of the National Academy. He won uh, Alaska Award. He won all sorts of impressive awards. He's retired now. I think he has a winery up in Napa. Um, I haven't tried the wine. I don't know if it's any good or not. <laughs> uh, 
And another one was a guy named Norm Weinberger down at, at uh, UC Irvine. And what both of their laboratories showed in a series of studies over the over decades was that adult animals, okay, adult animals can get a massive plasticity of some sensory representation in the brain that will change their experience due to stimulation of nucleus basalis. So here's the experiment. You take a, a human or a monkey and you give them a rotating drum. And this drum is just kind of like a smooth cylinder spinning around, right? And they put their fingers on it and the, the animal or the person is a little bit thirsty. And whenever there are a series of bumps go by that are very finely spaced, the animal or human gets a sip of juice or water, okay? So there's a reward there. And if they want to get that juice or water, they have to report it. They have to say, oh, I feel those bumps. I feel the bumps. Now, there are lots of bumps, but it's the ones that are close together that they have to wait for. Okay, so it's wait for it, wait for it, got it. Okay, you get your reward. Now, they measure the representation in the brain of the fingertips and the fingertips response to small tactile stimulation. In other words, bumps close together. And what you find is that there's a massive increase in the cortical representation of the fingertips that are waiting and responding to those bumps. Now, you say, okay, well, experience drove a change in the brain, no big deal. But here's the really key. Right, that's, that's Skinner, right? I mean, that's like a, this is like a modern Skinner bar, sort of. That's right, that's right. So you just say sort of input brain changes, output changes, fine. But what's incredible is if they had the person pay attention to say a tone, an auditory tone, not to the, the bumps, but they had the exact same experience, the representation of the fingertips didn't change at all. So there's a requirement for attention to the event in order for the change to occur. And then in a series of, of subsequent studies, they discovered it was acetylcholine release from basal forebrain, so much so that if right now I took your brains and I stimulated acetylcholine release from your basal forebrain, you could do that kind of globally with some Nicorette perhaps, or you could do it with an electrode um, dropped into nucleus basalis. Someday there'll probably be other non-invasive ways to do this more specifically. And then I played to you an eight kilohertz tone or a song. That song would be massively overrepresented in your brain forever unless we did another experiment to reverse the plasticity. In other words, basalis and release of acetylcholine from basalis at particular locations in the brain is a gate to plasticity in the adult that mimics the kind of massive plasticity that you see in children. So this is incredible because what it means, what the work of Merzenich and Weinberg and others means is that when you attend to something strongly, you get a massive change in your brain and that change is permanent unless you do something to reverse it, unless you also have some interference, like you're, well, okay, I'm listening to this um, language course perhaps, but I'm actually thinking about my Instagram, or I'm, you know, I'm thinking about my, you know, or I'm, I'm texting somebody, but I'm actually thinking about the other person that I'm gonna text in a minute. Okay, so attention is everything, and it's a very costly resource. Paying attention to something in a deep way as an adult is actually quite challenging. Now, here's the amazing thing. Okay, so there's a principle to emerge from that, right? So that's a bunch of little facts, but the principle to emerge from is if you wanna learn something as an adult, you have to pay attention. And I'll throw out one other study that I think is relevant, and it's actually my next door neighbor, he's retired now, but sitting in the office next to me now is a guy named Eric Knudsen, who did beautiful work for decades in, in of all species, barn owls, showing that the learning that occurs in the baby brain is massive, we all know that, but that the learning that occurs in the baby brain can be mimicked in the adult brain if 
the adult animal engages in attention to whatever it is that it wants to learn and their strong motivation. So what he did was he basically set up a paradigm where these animals, um, he was measuring the degree of plasticity in the visual world of, and in, in the auditory world of these owls. And he was always doing this by kind of feeding them uh, dead mice. And at the end, that was their reward. But when he made them hunt for their food, in other words, it was do or die, he saw the same degree of plasticity in the adult brain that you would see in a baby brain. And that was just, I mean, it was a beautiful nature paper. It really cracked open the whole idea that if it matters, it'll, you'll change, right? If you, if you put a revolver to my head right now and you say, look, you got to learn conversational French by next week, you can bet I'm going to learn conversational French and it's in there. But if I just say, oh, I'm going to take a French class and I'm going to learn this thing, it's not going to happen. So, you know, these are, are kind of what we would call hardcore mechanistic studies. And they, they kind of underscore what we've always known from the elite performance and sports communities and other communities and academic communities. But it's the attention and the care and the importance of something that really I want to underscore for the listeners, because that's something that actually takes work right? Focus and dedication can be talked about in broad terms. And you can say, oh, I'm going to go and crush this today. And I'm going to listen to this music and I'm going to do this. But really, even a short bout, even if it's 30 seconds of high, of sort of hyper-focused attention on something will change your brain permanently unless you do something to reverse that plasticity. So, you know, when you were talking about attention, for some reason, it reminded me of Angela Duckworth's book called Grit. I don't know if you are familiar with that, but um, just for the listeners, I mean, the, the premise of the book is that it turns out that the most talented people often aren't the most successful in life and the people who are gritty, um, which means they work hard and focus and pay attention, turn out to be more successful in life. And I just thought that was so interesting. You said that I thought, wow, you know, is it something about the, this group of people is able to pay attention and focus on a thing and become experts at it with grit. And then that ultimately makes them more successful, right? So are they like tapping into their brain plasticity in a way that others aren't? Absolutely. You know, um, we published, this isn't um, an attempt to plug our own work, but we published a paper uh, two weeks ago in Nature um, basically about the neuroscience, the underlying, um, neural circuitry for courage. You know, there's a lot out there on fear and, and it had a fear component uh, as well, but I'm very interested in the kind of positive aspects of, of neural circuitry and neural function and, um, neural, and what we found was that the level of stress, if you just looked at it in terms of heart rate and breathing and arousal state that an animal experiences from, or a human being for that matter, from a what we would call a courage step confronting a threat in this case a visual threat is actually much higher than the paralysis and fear response of you know hiding in your room or hiding in your office in this case it was it was literally a, a paralytic freezing and so if you just looked at the physiology and you didn't know anything about what was going on in terms of the subjective experience you'd say wow this person is really stressed they're you know their stress is through the roof you know we look at courage steps like you think about um, Rosa Parks, the I'm not going to go to the back of the bus thing, or the Tiananmen Square guy, whoever that, you know, that person was who stood in front of that tank. You have to imagine that their stress was through the roof. But retrospectively, we look back and we go, wow, that's courage. You know, that's bravery. But actually, their their internal experience, we now know from, from these experiments, was was just, you know, sky-high arousal and what we would call stress. It's the But what gets rewarded is what's important. It's when the outcome from that is positive or it has positive ripples right? Like the Tiananmen Square example, I think has served as a, you know, an example for so many people of, you know, that's what it is to stand up to adversity, right? You just look at that image and you feel that. But when you step into that, 
it changes you in a way that then you associate the arousal with the potential for something positive, right? Someone that has a fear or a phobia, and we're studying this in the lab, people with fears and phobias think of a spider as impending death, right? But when you're able to confront something and you think of confronting as the opportunity for reward, everything changes. And I'm sure you guys have experienced this, you know, yourselves and, and over and over, you know, in terms of with, uh, with the athletes you work with and high performers you work with. It's, you know, some people just develop this association with work and what we would call stress that becomes positive. And I think um, the Duckworth uh, work on grit is phenomenal in this regard. I think, you know, um, you know, and the work, you know, the book Mindset, you know, Carol Dweck's book, um, you know, my colleague here, you know, and others, you know, the idea that the growth is going to be painful, right? But that the but that that growth step, it requires a sort of discomfort and attention to discomfort, but the pay, that results in a payoff that's good for us and is long lasting. I think that's what we're trying to internalize in ourselves and our kids. And um, I like the idea that this is becoming more part of the common discussion. You know, there's so much to unpack there. I, I, I love all of this. It, it brought up Daniel Coyle's book, you know, uh, The Talent Code, talking about deep practice or intentional practice and that you know, that the acquisition of new skill really does mean that I have to focus hard, that neurons that fire together wire together and neurons that fire apart wire apart as the, as the fundamental. If I, if I swing this around, one of the things that I think is, is interesting is that when, I, when I've read about, I mean, neuro, the first deep conversations around neuroplasticity were in physio school talking about persistent pain and chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And one of the mechanisms for understanding persistent pain and chronic pain is that it's the neuroplasticity of the brain sort of being hijacked by these repetitive or noxious stimuli that my brain starts to, you know, perceive this as a, as a constant threat and worrisome threat. And we see even, to, you know, biological hard changes through the tissues that reflect that. How does, can you talk for a second about how this persistent pain, you know, is, is a kind of a, the flip side coin to what you're talking about around courage or fear, because I feel like this is now we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up to be able to understand, I mean, fear and pain are like, you know, cousins sort of, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's an excellent question. I, I, so up until now, we've been talking about plasticity as this kind of positive thing. I'm going to learn something or I'm going to overcome something. So rewiring oneself is a bi-directional phenomenon. You can, I can uh, learn something new. Um, but what if that new thing is pain? Right. I think is, you know, then you want to unlearn it and you want to replace it with something. That's hard. So it's hard. It's very hard. And here's the stinger. So the bi-directional plasticity that I'm referring to, that you can get positive changes through attention and focus and practice, regardless of the level of arousal. That's true. But there's an asymmetry to the other part, which is that it's much easier to have a negative experience wired into your nervous system. And that's just because it's adaptive, right? I mean, if I eat something for lunch today and then I feel nauseous, there's a good chance that I'm forever gonna avoid that article of food, right? That's actually a well-described phenomenon. So that's one trial permanent learning, so to speak. Right, that, and it was designed to keep me safe. Like antibuse, right? Like if I you drink and I give you antibuse, you throw up and you develop this quick association for that negative negative reinforcement done. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, the, the plasticity mechanisms that are there were designed for, foremost to keep us safe, not to teach us three languages or to give us some hyper skill, right? So, <laughs> you know, we were designed to hunt in packs. We weren't designed to, 
you know, try and jump on the back of the woolly mammoth and take it down ourselves, you know, which is probably what, you know, some of our friends and colleagues would try and do. Uh, you, can, you can decide which names you want to throw out there. I was tempted to throw out a few, but um, I'll, <laughs> so, um, you know, it's it, so in terms of unlearning things that are difficult or painful, there are different principles that can be applied. And if you just think about the positive plasticity about attention, you can say, okay, well, what if I, you know, a lot of biofeedback tools and a lot of meditation-based tools for pain management, and actually there's a center here and others at UCSF and other great institutions that are uh, geared towards our biofeedback for pain, and, and I'd love to hear about your practices for, for pain management in, in your clients. They involve defocusing from the pain or, you know, somewhat paradoxically, going as deeply into the pain as one possibly can. So this has always been a little bit of a conundrum for me, and I think the field really needs to evolve in some sense. So thinking about, so there's two ways to do this. You can focus off the pain, right, while uh, engaging in some sort of positive uh, affirmation or positive uh, sensation, and that can be accomplished through things like, depending on how active the person is, music or kind of endorphin-releasing type approach. The other way to approach this problem of how to sort of remove what you would call pathological pain uh, is to actually go into the pain and sort of trend what, you know, monks might call transcend the experience, right? Which is to rewire the association with the pain. So those are two different things. So I think when we, when we open, as we open this conversation, we need to think about changing the association to the pain or changing the pain itself. Okay. Now changing the pain itself, there's actually great potential for that because peripheral neurons, as you know, have the capacity to regenerate. Unlike central nervous systems in the neurons in the spinal cord and, and brain proper, which, uh, which don't readily regenerate, although we're now starting to understand there's more capacity for regeneration than has been previously appreciated. The neurons of the peripheral nervous system have a tremendous capacity to regenerate, including the pain neurons. They can literally wither away, rewire by millimeters in distance, which in neural terms is, is um, you know, is enormous. So now that can be accomplished uh, through a number of different tools. I'm excited about some of the tools that I've heard about and seen out there that involve um, stimulating. You know, there's the, as you know, there's this Melzack and Wall gate theory of pain, where you know when you have a pain, you know, something hits you or pokes you and it's painful, you kind of rub the wound site. And the rubbing of the wound site, the reason why that provides some release is there's actually some inhibition by the fibers that carry pain information. So they're literally, the rubbing is actually inhibiting the pain. And so when people are rubbing a painful spot, that's actually a good thing to do. Now, I'm sure we can go deep into this in terms of the techniques that you guys have developed and evolved over the years and but you, what but, that's doing. But people can relate to that. I mean, you, you see a kid fall, take a bad digger, and they get up and like run away. Right? Same, right. same thing, right? Let me, exactly. you know, that motor input physical input dampens potentially what what the brain is hearing right which is that like you said that gate that gate theory like some of the the older mechanisms of trying to deal with pain with like tens where you would shock put a little electric current in the skin and then people would block the pain without changing any of the underlying etiology of the of that pain mechanism that's right and you know i was in anticipation of this podcast i was reading ab about and thinking about um, some of the, and this is, I realize I'm probably getting uh, away from the, the more important nuance of this, but some of the general principles about working, working above and below an injury, right? And, you know, to me, that's the essence of, of, of plasticity in order to rewire circuits that are in a chronic pain state. Because when you do that, because the motor neurons in the body act, act as a chain, I mean, it, you can isolate muscles, of course, and isolate joints, but they're acting as a chain. What you're doing when you sort of work, uh, you know, you provide therapeutic work above and below 
an injury site is you're actually providing the opportunity for the kind of positive neural soothing of the of the injury location and for rewiring of the sensory afferents that actually register pain itself. Now, the interesting thing is that, so taking that as kind of the example and, and running with it, when one does that, there's the change in the pain fibers that occurs at the level of the injury, at the level of the spindle or at the level of the, even the fascia or the muscle, the joint or the skin. But then there's also the changes that occur higher up in the regions of the thalamus that um, are sort of a, a relay station before one gets to the neocortex where sort of perceptual understanding occurs, that there are areas of the thalamus that gate what information gets to the cortex. In fact, you could say that the thalamus, which is this giant egg-like structure in the middle of the brain, its primary role is to determine what information gets from the sensory periphery, whether it's through the eyes, the ears, the skin, the joints, up to the cortex for perception to occur. So this is what we kind of think bottom up, you know, from experience through the skin and body up into the thalamus and then to the cortex where the interpretation is made. And some really beautiful work that was done by the late Ted Jones up at UC Davis and others um, really illustrated that much of the plasticity that we think about in terms of a change in pain representation or touch representation is actually occurring in the thalamus, which is a heavily gated structure. The thalamus is a structure which is designed to gate information. It literally is there to decide whether or not something that's happening, you're gonna feel it or not, and if you feel it, whether or not the association is gonna be positive or negative. It's an incredible structure, highly, um, I think it's very underappreciated in the world of kind of popular neuroscience. And um, you know, the tools and techniques of release, say fascial release or working above and below an injury, I'd be willing to bet that if we did a series of imaging studies, and maybe we should, that we would just that we would discover that a lot of the changes are happening at the site of injury, at the, literally rewiring these peripheral neurons, as well as in the thalamus, and that the story that you tell yourself about the pain, which is largely going to be a cortical thing, the sort of what we would call top down, like oh, I'm going to just think about this whole thing differently, that may or may not work as well as actually the physical practice of working the the tissue and letting the sensory representations change at a deep level, at this thalamic level. This is amazing. You know, we, I read a great book by uh, an author named Doage who, talk about, who wrote about, you know, these incredible ways that the brain cannot heal itself per se. As you said, that some, sometimes the, the reason that the brain is perceived differently than some of the rest of the organs of the body is that it doesn't have this mechanism of, of regeneration as, as readily available, but, but it can rewire and as he's talked about, you know, really addressing chronic pain, this, this in persistent pain, he said that the, one of the most effective kind of cognitive behavioral therapies is to really have people focus on attention around their brain states when they experience these pains. So just what you're saying, I think it's so interesting that, you know, that there, there, we have these other downstream inputs that are physical inputs where we shift loci of control, we, we change food, we try to get people to sleep more, we try to get people to walk around more, right, to start to, to shift agency back to the person. But then up, up top, that there are real cognitive behavioral inputs where we can help people be able to manage these beliefs. Because once you're in pain, or if you've ever been in a situation, let, let me tell you a story. Um, we were in uh, Europe last year, and someone gave me a vibrating roller. And I laid on that vibrating roller up by my hip flexor, and because I could take a lot, Juliet's like, oh boy, as I, I could take a lot and I went to town on this vibrating roller. For like two hours. No, no, no. He'll <laughs> deny that, but it was two hours. A man of moderate. And I, I literally irritated all of the fascia connection of my hip 
and was crippled for about two weeks. And wow. he, like literally walking around, I was like, oh, I've, I've permanently damaged my body. <laughs> and I started even knowing what I know and the training. I haven't been in a chronic pain state like this for a long time. And I really started to believe this will never end. This is my new normal, right? This is going to get worse, you know, and I can't stand this. And those three lies, I mean, I was watching myself sort of slip into that. And then one day, of course, I woke up and you know, got through this inflammatory response and, and healing. But it was shocking to see how quick I had slipped into this, you know, morass of really, really persistent, debilitating pain. Yeah, I mean, one thing that uh, your, your story really calls to mind is that, you know, pain makes us present, right? Unfortunately, it makes us present in the thing we don't want to be present with, right? You know, all the meditation in the world won't get you as present as a, as just a hard stub of the, you know, the bed stand <laughs> right to your toe. <laughs> You're so present, it, you know, and it in that moment, it feels as if it's going to go on forever. And that's a way that these, well, let's call them low-level systems that are important for survival, hijack all your cognition. Right. And so much of, you know, first responders and people that are great athletes and, you know, you know, or have insight like you did. You say, OK, this is this too will pass. Right. Like any kind of grief. It's a physical grief in that moment, not an emotional grief. But, you know, when people die, we say this too will pass. It's the recognition that the pain that one is experiencing, which is often very intense, of course, exists in a much longer, longer time bin and that you have to you have to, you know, set some self-preservation things in, in place. And so, you know, pain gets us present. And so I think that, you know, but what you're referring to is this issue of state. And I, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, in particular with some of the, the work I'm starting to do with, you know, Brian McKenzie and others. And just generally, I've been thinking about this as a neuroscientist for a long time. So if you look at the world of changing oneself, whether or not it's emotional, physical, to manage pain, to learn something new, um, et cetera, there's sort of two action steps that one can take in the face of anything. One is to say, you know, okay, I'm not where I want to be right now. I want to be better. So I'm going to change my state in order to get to the behavior that I need to do. So drink your, you know, I drink my coffee this morning to get into a state that's slightly different than the one I woke up in, in order to change my behavior. But the other half of the equation, so you see, I should just say, so you see a lot of tools nowadays around breathing and I'm starting to develop some around vision and you guys have a host of, of wonderful tools there as well around movement and mobility that are designed to change one's state. Now, at the same time, one can say, you know what, I, I'm not able to, to anchor down my state. I'm going to use a behavior to change my state and then get to the behavior that I want to engage in. So I think that really powerful individuals, regardless of what their profession or daily life routine looks like, or even if they're just managing a difficult illness, really, those people are able to know when the decision to access a state first or a behavior first is the optimal one. So let's say we're, you know, heading out to train and there's a lot going on and, um, you know, it's just not right in the right space. You, by now, you probably have tools where you can just snap into state in order to train. But there are going to be times in which the actual training is going to take you where you want to go. And of course, both is what's really important. I believe, and this is something that we are looking at in humans in the lab, that that these action steps combined with states are really where the maximum depth of plasticity occurs, meaning you can get the most amount of rewiring of either connections between neurons or strength, strength of connections between neurons. And that could be applied to pain management in the following way. 
So let's say that I'm dealing with a, you know, kind of a lower back injury or something. I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm not a kinesiologist, so I'm, I'm probably not going to get the terms right. But I, you know, let's say I'm just constantly rubbing my lower back and I said, you know, I'm going to shift to a standing desk. Okay. And it's kind of helping, but it's not really doing much. So I have this option. I can just say, okay, you know, this is good for me. I'm going to do it for three weeks or, you know, and I'm going to just see where I end up or I can decide, you know, I'm actually going to change the whole experience here. I'm going to decide that this is the best thing. This is a little bit like your example. I'm kind of hijacking your example. This is the best thing I've ever done for myself. My back is not only going to feel better, my posture is going to be better. Everything's going to be better. My gait, my running gait, my, my time's running. Everything's going to be better. I'd be willing to bet, and I'm sure you have a, a you know, host of examples to, uh, for this in your, in your work with other people and yourselves. I'd be willing to bet that the mere addition of that positive affirmation that this is a good thing for me would not only accelerate the relief from the pain, but would actually encourage me to do more things like this. And so what I'm really doing here is I'm sort of describing kind of the um, personal evolution, self-helpy uh, or elite athletic community, uh, desk worker community in, a, in sort of neuroscience-y terms, but all the mechanism that we understand about attention, about acetylcholine, about unlearning painful experiences, and about the fact that there's top-down, meaning that my thoughts and feelings about an experience matter, top-down as well as the experience bottom up that what I, you know, if I'm do even just add something simple, like I reward myself for standing at the desk for four hours a day with a song or some time with family that I wouldn't otherwise spend in the absence of any kind of electronic, in, in, you know, uh, uh, intervention, you know, that combination of factors is working both sides of this plasticity mechanism. It's taking advantage of the the positive plasticity that comes from attention and reward, and it's taking into account that there's asymmetry, that you really have to work hard to unlearn something painful. That's amazing. Uh, you know, one of the things I know for a fact, and one of the, the hallmarks of when we have people in persistent pain or chronic pain or pathologic pain, one of the things we try to encourage is as much movement as possible. And that begins with just walking, short doses. And then we try to, we try to get as much just non-threatening motion in one of the things we know is that, or we're understanding what I've read, is that brisk walking actually releases a ton of, of sort of brain growth factors and is one of the ways that you can hijack and turn back on that neuroplasticity switch because your brain thinks, hey, I'm in a novel environment. I'm walking fast. Something's going on. And it's a way where you've just said that one of the reasons that makes sense is that it's a, you can do this behavior while you're thinking about something else or, or you know, it's the behavior first. I love that. I think that's the best explanation of of so many of the things that we interventions that we try to lean on. We know that there are strong impacts of what's called belief effects here, right? It's like not placebo; it's belief effects. And then you add in these, you know, these bottom up changes. It really starts to paint a cogent picture of why we've had a lot of good experience anecdotally with end of thousands and thousands of people being able to take a swing at changing their perception of what's going on in their bodies. Absolutely. I mean, novelty is huge. Um, so the, the brisk walk example. Um, so we know um, as a field that blood flow um, encourages IGF-1 release, neural stem cell, maybe even neural stem cell proliferation uh, in the hippocampus, dentate gyrus and other places to improve memory. I mean, the, the blood flow issue is huge. Okay. I think one could argue that most of the neurogenesis literature, so now I'm not talking about regeneration or rewiring of neurons, I'm talking about an actual addition of new neurons in the adult brain, can is boiled down to increase blood flow. And then there's some downstream effectors like 
uh, IGF-1 and other things that stimulate the actual release of those progenitor uh, daughter cells from progenitors, which is just basically um, nerd speak for new neurons. Okay, so blood flow is huge. I cannot underestimate the value of blood flow the, uh, for engaging plasticity. And then novelty. So it's interesting. I've, so there are two colleagues. That you, you brought up the Nicorette example, and I don't know that I want to encourage people to run out there and start chewing Nicorette. But you know, there's a very, <laughs> um, very famous – I'm not going to name him because I, I don't know that, if I should do that. But there's a very famous Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist. And when I met with him for the first time, he chewed six pieces of Nicorette in an hour. I do not recommend people do that. <laughs> Freak out. So don't do that. And I asked him why, and he said that when he quit smoking, which was a good decision for him, obviously, his ability to attend to work and to have um, creative ideas, this guy's now in his late 70s, um, really diminished. And he figured out that it was really the nicotinic acetylcholine stimulation of his cortex, which is exactly what basalis, these neurons that we referred to earlier, nucleus basalis, release. And in fact, nicotinic acetylcholine um, augmentation is one of the primary modes of treatment for Alzheimer's. Unfortunately, there it's not a permanent effect um, for people with Alzheimer's. So there's still the need for better treatments there. But it's just incredible. So, you know, here's a, a, a guy who really understands the mechanistic neuroscience. He's got a Nobel in hand. He also invented some other valuable techniques for neuroscience. I really trust him. And he's they're chewing Nicorette. And so I start paying attention to this as they as a occasional practice that I that I engage in. Now, the other thing that you know will change you, if you've ever taken a vacation, it's this odd thing where you, you go abroad, maybe you go visit Italy or for your listeners that might be in Italy, you go to the US and you go back and you sort of feel different, right? Well, I think that effect is largely due to the fact that you're actually paying attention to your external world differently. Think about when you drive home around a long oh, yeah. route that you- right. You don't even remember the whole experience. That's right. But when you're driving and you're looking for a new location, even if you've got the, you know, the Google Maps or Waze or whatever it is, you're actually anticipating landmarks. When is this turn coming? When is that turn coming? It's actually kind of an exhausting experience in the sense that it feels like it took longer, right? It always feels like it takes longer when you're looking for a place. And that's because your attention carves up your life experience into different time bins. So when you're allowed to drift, you know, time just seems to kind of pass by and you don't even really notice it passing. Whereas when you're looking for the road signs, it's really like, okay, have we gotten there yet? Have we gotten there yet? It seems like the drive takes much longer. I think there's an important principle to emerge from that, which is that the paying attention to the little increments is actually quite valuable in terms of telling our brain, it's how we carve up time. It's telling our brain, hey, this experience is important. Think about waiting for a diagnosis, like a, a key diagnosis, or waiting for a baby to arrive, or for, to make it a positive event. When you're anticipating something, so novelty and anticipation go together, and novelty, anticipation, and plasticity go together. And so the last little anecdotal bit is I have a colleague, also very accomplished, who whenever we're at meetings, she bounces from one location in the auditorium to the next in every talk. And at first I was like, what's going on here? This is kind of crazy. Like you've got some sort of neurotic issue. And I asked her at the break, I said, why are you doing that? She said, well, I just noticed I can attend so much better than if I sit in the same seat the entire meeting. And I started doing this and it's remarkable. You just move and literally your visual and auditory perspective changes and you can go an entire day paying attention to this information in a way that before I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, I don't know this, like this stuff is kind of going you know, right through me. And so, you know, there are all sorts of things. So always reading in the same location can be good. But also I think just these little be micro behaviors of, you know, shifting where you do something or how you do something uh, can have a profound effect on how it changes our neurology. That's so interesting. You know, that uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about kids. And the first point I want to make is we actually have a good friend of ours whose son um, they, they went to the parent teacher conference and the teacher said, you know, man, your son was just pacing around the entire time in the back of the classroom. And at first I thought that it was a distraction and I kept telling him to sit down until I realized that 
the moment he he started pacing, he actually was able to listen and pay attention in class, and he was actually absorbing all the information. So it sounds like he picked up at a young age the same strategy this woman you're working with does, <laughs> um, which mm-hmm. makes total sense to me. But the other thing that Kelly and I, the, the maybe the main way we talk about neuroplasticity in our own home is with our kids, and it may be sort of advanced for them, but we learned some time ago that basically a kid's brain is you know, extra super plastic until they're about 25 years old. Um, and during that time, they are the most susceptible to addiction. So this is one of the ways that we talk to our kids about, you know, avoiding um, massive amounts of drug and alcohol experimentation in their life um, because of the the plasticness of their brain. What do you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, the plasticity we talked about up until now has really been about adult plasticity or a term that I'm... Um, you know, I'm trying to get out there, which is self-directed adaptive plasticity, because I can also get some plasticity by, you know, uh, you know, hitting my head hard on an object. That's not the kind of plasticity you want, obviously. <laughs> the, the kind of plasticity you want is self-directed and adaptive as an adult. Now, when we're kids or, for, or when, we, when we parent um, kids or if you teach youngsters of any kind, what we know is that their brain is hyperplastic. It, it's basically almost everything is nearly one trial learning. Now that doesn't mean they can, you know, you say, well, they still have to do their math homework and it's sometimes hard and they have to, you know, toil through it. Absolutely. I mean, things take repetition and work. I mean, there's a grind there for sure for certain activities, but what you're alluding to with the drug alcohol addiction potential, um, is so true, which is that the neuromodulators in the young brain, because the brain is not completely wired up, there's literally a lot of space in there. The extracellular space hasn't been sealed up there's a lot of opportunity for plasticity and there's a lot of neuromodulation. So basalis is kind of, it's, I wouldn't say it's hosing the cortex with acetylcholine all the time, but it's almost a kind of like a sprinkler that's going off all the time. So any new experience, if it's coupled with either a very intensely positive, AKA drug, you know, positive, not saying that people should do it, but positive, like internally that people do drugs because they feel good, at least in the moment, then they degrade you and destroy your life or a negative, like, Oh, a social stress event or, you know, what feels like a failure. You one has to really intervene quickly. And it's the parents whose job is obviously to intervene. And so think of the think of the young brain as a brain that's hyperplastic but requires less attention and focus for that plasticity. And this is also it can be cast in positive light. You know, for instance, a, a kid like my niece can learn three languages without an accent you know, trivially almost until she's about 11 or 12, maybe 13, 14. And then as she gets older and then she, you know, I can't do that now. Right. So there's, this was designed so that uh, again, the brain was basically designed as purely an adaptive device so that whatever the kid experienced that was positively rewarded would be more rewarded, but drugs sort of, they hijack that positive reward system. They large bolus of dopamine opioids and it feels really good. And so your brain and your nervous system think, Oh great, let's wire this in and creates a much higher propensity for addiction in adulthood. That's actually something I'd like to cast out in light of this kind of link the earlier adult plasticity and young plasticity. Other work by Eric Knudsen, this colleague of mine that I referred to earlier, showed that if a young animal or child experiences a plasticity event, like say learning how to ride a bike or swim in the positive sense, or a uh, seeing a, you know, a car crash, a visual trauma, the capacity for plasticity as an adult in that narrow regime, meaning you know, uh, if they saw a car crash again, or they saw a car crash and it was minor is much higher when you're an adult. So the, the, the things you experienced when you were young kind of set the stage for what's going to be easiest to change in your brain when you're an adult. 
Okay. And we see this all the time. I mean, athletes are a really good example where, you know, you have somebody who danced ballet when they were younger and then they take on something when they're older, like capoeira or something. And it's almost like, well, or gymnastics to capoeira, maybe it's a better example or, you know, or, or reverse it capoeira to gymnastics. And you think, well, they're really great at that. Where I, whereas I did a lot of linear activities, I ran or, you know, do weightlifting or something, you're kind of, you know, so the kind of lateral movement stuff come, doesn't come as easily for me because my cerebellum and my, my motor cortex are just not as, as prepared for that. So you can create a kind of underlying substrate for plasticity later. So when we talk about raising our kids, it's, it's not just about getting them wired up for childhood and wired up for adulthood. It's about getting them wired up for rewiring later also. I, lo- yeah, I love that we have a, I love that. a cellular granular explanation for Freud. It's great. It's, I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I was like, wow, I'll, all I did was linear sports as a kid, and no wonder I'm terrible at gymnastics. <laughs> no, it's because right, I mean, gymnastics aren't. Yeah. Wait, wait, hold, hold on. Um, one of the things that I think is relevant in this conversation, especially in the work that you're doing, you think it's incredible work at your lab, is when we are talking with people about new experiences, the self-imposed prison debt, you know, hell of fear is is such a real piece. And when we see people coming in and having conversations about persistence pain or disability, um, they are very fearful of moving. They're fearful of re-injuring. They're fearful of of never getting better. I mean, it seems that if, as you as you say, kind of uncoupling some of these mechanisms, it seems like if we can take some of the ways that we're addressing fear, we could apply those things of fear, not necessarily of sharks, but fear of anything else. Can you talk about that, that mechanism around fear and some of the work that you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'll do that and I'll try and deliver uh, an actionable tool in doing that. So one of the things that we discovered in this, um, and was published in this recent nature paper is now being applied in our, we use a virtual reality lab. That's where, you know, you asked, referred to the sharks earlier, you know, Brian and some other folks who were out there, KJX at white shark diving in order to bring back footage for virtual reality. Um, this will be my plug to try and get people to, if, if, if I may, I'm going to agree just oh, yes. plug here, but you know, we, we, we really need subjects for our experiments and um, we do pay them a nominal amount. We give you a parking pass and a t-shirt. You come I'm to Stanford in. and be a subject. Yes. We'd love for you to do this. I'm in. It's not just the white shark experience, but also heights. And um, you can just email, um, you can email me at ADH1 at stanford.edu and I'll pass that email along. Or we have an Instagram where you can email us there, which is at Huberman Lab. But in any event, this format where people come in and we put them into high moderate to high stress um, environments. And we look at their behavior, we look at their subjective reports. And then we also are doing kind of deeper brain mechanistic studies, although we are recording from the human brain in some subjects. We recorded from the human amygdala, threat detection and fear center in some kid, 24 year old kid experiencing the white shark um, experience. It's incredible. Hope to publish those work next year. Um, Now, okay, so here's what we found. And I hope this will provide motivation for people to overcome their fears, whatever those might be. So it turns out that what we call fear is actually the first or second step toward the courage and if you breakthrough, if you will, event. So I always thought that these, that basically extreme fear is what came at the end when you were freaking out, but that's actually not how it works. So let me give you an example. We're, let's say the three of us are walking through a field together. We're up in Marin County, say, and it, our, there's nothing there. And so our behavior is basically unconstrained. We can sit down. We can have a picnic, we can walk, we can run, we can talk, we can do whatever we want. All of a sudden we see a mountain lion in the distance, okay? Not an impossible experience in Marin County. 
We see the mountain lion. The logical step is to pause, okay? Not to run at it, not to scream, not to fight it, certainly, and maybe to hide, but to pause or to hide. And that's exactly what animals do. And if we measured our level of internal arousal, aka stress, just to make it easier on ourselves, what we would find is that our arousal level had gone up. If you looked at our behavior, you'd say it was a fearful behavior. We either froze or we hid. Maybe we got into a car. Now, let's say that mountain lion turned towards us and we saw its eyes. Now it sees us. Okay, now freezing is not a good strategy. Our arousal level would go up even more. It would be the, oh shit, it sees us. So now the optimal strategy is probably to hide, maybe to go into a structure, or if there isn't a structure, to slowly back away. But our arousal level now has gone up a bit, right? Now the animal is chasing us. Now it's really an oh shit scenario. So now the best strategy is definitely not to freeze or hide, it's to run. Not to run at it and fight, but to run away because it's chasing us, okay? So now our level of arousal is very high. Our heart is pumping, you're breathing harder, your pupils are dilated. You'd say, wow, this is really fear. If you just saw a snapshot of us, you'd say those three are really afraid of that animal and that's the logical thing to do. Now let's say it's right on top of us, okay? Or it jumps on one of us. What's the logical thing to do? Fight, right? You're not gonna freeze. You can try and play possum, but that's not a good strategy. You're not gonna hide, okay? So if you look at the behavior at that moment, just at that moment, you'd say, oh my God, they are really fierce. These folks fight mountain lions. They fight cougars, okay? So that's the courage step, but the level of arousal is actually sky high in that moment. It's the very highest. So. The, the principle to emerge from this, the, the kind of surprise for us is that the, the courage step, the confronting the fear, whether or not it's a physical confrontation or the literally showing up to confront the pain and work through the pain, whether or not it's emotional or physical, it, that literally the, literally the courage step is the most stressful step, but it's the adaptive one. It's the only one that's going to get you through. And so when you think about your fear, your fear is actually the first step on a staircase to getting through the experience that you want to get through. And anyone who's gotten through one of those scenarios will tell you that the reward that comes from that is so highly um, adaptive and rewires your neurology to such an extent that you will forever be different in the positive sense. And that, and that because it literally resets your relationship to the arousal state, what you think is fear, what you think is the end, is actually just the beginning. So if someone is dealing with chronic pain or someone is dealing with a serious emotional pain, right? And the idea of just thinking about it is crushing. Yes, it's understandable how they would wanna back away from that, but that just even a micro step forward and another micro step forward and through that, there's an almost virtual neural guarantee that you're gonna be rewarded in the positive sense for getting through it. Now, of course, people don't want, you don't want people to be haphazard or ridiculous. Like I see these YouTube videos of these like parkour kids like hanging off of buildings. That's just what you refer to as stupid because it's non-adaptive, right? <laughs> the failure the, the failure there is, is, is not gonna be rewarded, right? And I hate to tell them this, but like no one's really paying attention at the level they think they are. So, but, what, what, but when we're thinking about confronting fears in the, in the sense of really working through a challenge in a kind of regular and incremental or devoted way. It doesn't have to even take that long. What you're really talking about is accessing the deepest reward systems in the brain and having a permanent, in this case, the word indelible really is appropriate, an indelible change in your neural circuitry that will change your level to stress and challenge across the board. And I think that's one of the more exciting things to come from this study is that when one engages in a courage step, 
you actually alleviate stress and anxiety to a huge variety of circumstances, not just the one. So it generalizes. That's just, my mind is blown. And I'm also sitting here thinking about when Juliet was attacked by a hippo in Africa and had to swim away from her hippo chomping boat, boat chomping hippo, and then through the crocs up onto the shore with the Cape Buffalo and why Juliet is still a savage. Because, and, Are and, you serious? Yeah, yes. seriously. But that actually happened to me. And then the other thing, you know, when I was preparing for this, I noticed you make a distinction distinction between real fear, you know, like good fear and irrational fear. And I've been telling Kelly for years that I'm afraid of sharks. And I'm like, in my case, that is not an irrational fear because I have actually been attacked by a 4,000 pound animal before. Right, right. <laughs> and if you, for everybody else, it's an irrational and fear. And if you just type in <laughs> iPhone hippo commercial, you'll see why Juliet still has this phobia of, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's well-founded. I'll give it to you. It's not, it's not Yeah, placebo. everyone's like, you're not going to get attacked by a shark. I'm like, yes, I am. Actually. <laughs> That's why we, actually it, I am. It's time to come down to the lab. <laughs> you have to be as a subject in our, in our experience. Yeah, I really, maybe I, out onto the boat in, in Guadalupe sometime too, yes. which is, uh, they are beautiful animals. They are very threatening, but no, that's, I mean, I think that, um, as humans, I think it's at the core of our, uh, our neurology to want to adapt to increasingly difficult circumstances to a point and then to use that to be better across a lot of domains. And I think that's really what we're talking about here. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate how granular it is because it's so easy to get lost in the weeds around fear or anxiety about a, a behavior or about, you know, having a tough conversation. I mean, even just watching our, I'll just throw her under the bus. Uh, you know, our oldest daughter had a, uh, had her first boyfriend this year and Juliet's like, Oh boy, here we go. And she decided she w- didn't want to have a boyfriend and she would not like have this tough conversation with him. You know, the f- watching her do anything else, but she was trying up. to ghost him. She's trying to ghost him. And we were like, no, no, no. And I was like, you know, I said this feeling that you're feeling right now, it's fear and you just need to move towards it. That's actually a sign that you're in the right direction. And she was like, it feels right. terrible. And I was like, no, 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 that's, that's your cue that thing, interesting things are happening and you should, you should welcome that. And I, I feel like that's even as allegory for people who are in persistent pain or chronic pain, you know, this is a big deal because, uh, you know, hey, I'm afraid of taking a walk. I take a two minute walk. I'm okay. I mean, just the entire belief s- structure starts to change on top of that. I think that's, that was so helpful. Yeah, the, the, the anxiety or what we've, you know, stress is a word that I, I have an issue with because, you know, we, we want to think about levels of autonomic arousal. So when you, so I guess the short, you know, the short um, tool would be the, the brief tool, um, back of pocket tool, if you will, would be when your heart starts pumping, when you're sweating, when you're breathing, when you're turning red and you know that's all happening, that's good. You're moving toward courage, right? You're transitioning in and through fear and toward courage. And that's exactly the direction you want to go. Otherwise, you know, you become one can become a little bit of an emotional agoraphobic and we're all guilty of doing this. We back away from that. Oh, yeah. And then we're rewarded for it. But it's nothing like the reward you receive on the other side of of what, you know, that feel what feels like stress. So before we let you go, I know you are working on developing tools and techniques to reduce fear and anxiety. And I think it would be super helpful for our listeners to hear what those are and what's working and what's not working and where you are in that. Yeah, so the tools that um, we're developing are really grounded in the visual system, which is an area that I've worked on for a long time. And there are a lot of areas in neuroscience, but the visual system is one in which we have really rich knowledge of the cells and neural circuits and connections. And there's a lot of, you know, former Nobel Prize winning work on plasticity. So it's a really great place to work. And, and so 
I, you know, for a long time now, I've been interested in tools that one can use through the visual system, um, vision, um, in order to adjust their state. And so here's a, a couple that might be of value. One thing that we're testing is the hypothesis that taking on panoramic vision, that is seeing yourself in the immediate or larger environment that you're in, can actually rapidly downregulate your level of arousal and stress. And you think of this as yogis talk about soft gaze, you know, of you kind of softening the eyes and seeing the whole picture. What we know is that animals that are very placid, grazing animals, think about antelope, rabbit, animals like that, they are so placid that if one of the members of their tribe gets picked off by a hunter, they just go right back to being basically lawnmowers, okay? So, and they only have this panoramic vision. They don't have what we call high acuity foveal vision. They don't have the ability to focus on a distant point. So panoramic vision is a way, uh, engaging in panoramic vision is a way in which one can rapidly downregulate their level of arousal and stress. And I find this to be a very useful tool because it's immediately available and it's a very fast downregulation. Um, again, we need more science to back this up, but this is one of the things that we're testing. Now the converse is also true. If you think about an animal like a lion whose job is basically to hunt, and that hunting job involves focusing on a very particular location in space and making what we call space-time calculations. Okay, which of those animals is moving in that direction? Which one is moving slowest? Which one looks like the one to pick off? And then go for it. They're engaging in what we call a virgin's eye movement. The eyes come together, um, they sort of focus in a little bit um, on the same point, vergence, convergence, if you will, and that now the brain is actively engaged in attention and focus. So that approach, we believe and we're testing the hypothesis can be used, I wouldn't even call this meditation, it's really just a vision of focusing on a focal point anywhere from one to three feet away, like maybe your hand, or off in the distance on the horizon for about a minute, and then focusing on a task that demands a lot of attention and focus, maybe a learning task designed to induce plasticity, maybe a writing task, maybe a, a sports performance task. Now, what we know is that the panoramic vision state is actually an incredible state to be in. I think this actually has to do with what um, Kotler and Wheel refer to as flow, because it turns out that the component of the visual system for the aficionados is called the magnocellular system, which just means big, magno, actually transmits neural information much faster. So believe it or not, when you're in panoramic vision, you're actually calmer and your reaction times are much faster because neural impulses are traveling much faster because the cables are literally bigger. Just think about bigger pipes. You know, more, more water can flow through them than a very narrow pipe. Whereas when we're in a high acuity system, think texting, think reading, what you're really doing is you're engaging the components of your brain that are really far up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, you can't be creative and focused and implement a strategy very well unless you already feel safe. And so, um, for the stressed out individual or someone who's heading into a stressful event, go into panoramic vision. If suddenly you find yourself stressing, even if you're in conversation, see the whole room. And what you'll notice is you're still able to pay attention, but that you're immediately, your state will start to come down. Now you'll start to relax a little bit. And then when you want to engage in something, like you want to stay focused, focus on a point for, for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, or a minute. And what you'll find is that your attentional capacity actually gets locked in. Think about the lion laying around all day on the plane, just kind of relaxing in panoramic vision, licking its paws, sleeping, and then decides it's going to hunt and it becomes the beast, right? They're not beasts all the time 
right? It, they become that beast by engaging in vergence eye movements. And so those are two tools. There are a number of other tools related to the visual system that we're evolving and developing. But those are the two that I think um, your listeners can probably take advantage of right away. And the feedback that we've gotten is, wow, this panoramic vision thing really works. And I said, well, you know, thank you. I appreciate that. But I really can't take too much credit for it. Because if you think about it, what's one way I can really stress you out? I can put you in an environment like a small box, where even if you can breathe well, you can't really see very far. You can't get the panoramic vision. This is why I think that hikes and trips to the sea are really wonderful because when you look at a horizon, your eyes naturally diverge. They naturally take in the whole picture. And you, you know, and we often take vacations to places where we can see ourselves in broader context. And so uh, I just so those are two tools that you can use, and we're going to be exploring these with mechanistic detail in both animal models and in humans. And we're doing that now in my lab. Well, I tell you what. As one takeaway, I know that when Juliet's getting in, giving her virgin stink eye at me, she's got the squint. I should go immediately into downregulation panoramic mode so I can handle with my fear and stress. And that's, dude, what what a takeaway! You know, I see it. Hey, um, you know, we, I feel like we can keep chatting. We need to have you. We need to talk about the the next time we're we're in the same town. We need to have another conversation because I feel I feel like what you're doing is pulling away the curtain behind the magician and people are beginning to hear some of the, you know, just the really simple biology that also maps with who we are as human beings. And you've just done such a gorgeous job of explaining that to us. So thank you so much. So fascinating. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me on. I love the work you guys have done. I, uh, and you know, we've only met that the one time, but it was really an honor and a privilege and I look forward to more interactions. Likewise Ditto to you. And we will of course, uh, link to, um, your email and your lab uh, for anyone who wants to oh, yeah. go be a subject. Hold, hold on to your butt. The people are coming. <laughs> uh, uh, that would be great. Mr. Human, thank you. thank you so much. And uh, we will see you soon, pal. Great. See you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of MobilityWatt.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Till next time, cheers, everyone. You got it! Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliet Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! Stop.